If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Um, hello, everyone. Thank you for coming this evening to this London Review of Books event with Lavinia Greenlaw. Uh, I'm thrilled to introduce Lavinia. She's a prize-winning author, and her latest book, which is a truly wonderful book, Some Answers Without Questions, um, which has been described as part memoir, part manifesto, and um, I would add part exploration of what it is to be a writer, to be a woman, and to find one's voice, sometimes in the cacophony of the world. Um, Lavinia was born in London, and when she was 11, her family moved to a small Essex village, a period she writes about brilliantly in her new book, which is something we'll probably talk about later on. Um, I need to now go to my list to read out the awards that Lavinia has won because uh, I wasn't able to memorize them. <laughs> There's too many. So uh, Lavinia has won the Ted Hughes Award, a Forward Prize, a Gregory Award, and a Welcome Fellowship, as well as the Prix du Premier Roman Étranger for her first novel, Mary George of All Northover. She's written six books of poetry and three novels, as well as three works of experimental nonfiction which include the equally brilliant The Importance of Music to Girls and her latest book, Some Answers Without Questions, published on Thursday by Faber and Faber. Her work also includes an immersive sound installation, radio dramas and documentaries, libretti and a film. She's professor of creative writing at Royal Holloway University of London. Thank you, Lavinia, for being here tonight. I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to discuss your new book. I absolutely loved it. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, I want to just let everyone know that you can buy signed copies in the LRB bookshop, and there'll be opportunities tonight in the side chat at the event. Um, side chat, there'll be links for buying the book. Um, and throughout our conversation tonight, I just want to let you know you can ask questions, and I'll try and uh, put them to Lavinia before the evening is out, as many as we can do. Um, so, Lavinia, I wonder if you would be happy to start this evening by reading the opening chapter to Some Answers Without Questions. Sure, thank you. Um, good evening, everyone. The first chapter is called I Wasn't There. At 15, I suffered a rupture that I still can't explain. My mother later described it as when you stopped being able to learn. My mind locked away what it knew and refused to absorb anything further, so that I started to fail at school in subjects um, where I'd not had to try. At this time, I was putting most of my energy into having feelings, reading and writing poems, listening to music, falling in and out of love, going anywhere and doing anything in hope of experience. No wonder I found this sudden blankness restful. It was so absolute that I didn't really understand it was happening and didn't ask for help. By then, I knew something of the dangers of presence and what it might attract. If I put myself forward to be seen or heard, I was inviting a response. If the bad thing happened, it was my fault because I had been dancing or drinking or walking in the woods. I had raised my hand or laughed or argued back. I had opened a door or entered a room. I had seen and heard. My presence was the explanation for whatever happened next. So perhaps I was refusing to be present or refusing to learn more about this. 
or the rupture was the result of some internal equation, opposing forces cancelling each other out. I was afraid of agency, but determined on experience, guarded and avid, brimming and shrinking. Despite this, I wanted to be there, wherever there was, so badly that I overcame the fear of negotiating a world in which I had stopped working. This was also a time when everything felt important. Above all, who I was standing next to, what I was listening to, what I wore and said, and how I moved and all I felt. I was so intensely there that I couldn't bear it. When I was 40, I began work on a book about the role music could play in growing up. I was the single mother of a teenager. I'd escaped a bad situation, secured us a home, published three books and had started to teach. I'd been discussed and reviewed, praised, rewarded, criticised and rejected. And I thought I had the good and bad of all that at a healthy remove. Life was more rewarding and calmer than it had ever been. Yet I could not bring myself to break a habit I didn't even know I had, that I would withhold myself rather than risk presence. On page 192, I left home, and on page 193, I had a baby. In the years between those two pages, I sang in a band and made a record, but I knew from the start that I wasn't going to mention any of this. People ask why, and I haven't known what to say. The decision occurred at such a deep level that I'm not even aware of having made it. Now I'm in my late 50s and almost as far from that 40-year-old as she was from the teenager she wrote about. I've been wondering about that silence and why, in a book about music, I withheld the one time I made it the focus of my life. Between 18 and 20, I was at college, but I also did this other thing. A handful of people thought of me as a singer. I sang. Writing the book took me back to the record shop where I used to hang out after class, wanting to talk about music and relieved to have found others to whom it meant so much. I was as intent as all the other people in the room who were boys. Their expertise was nuanced, judgmental and competitive. Mine too. I kept turning up at the shop until someone said hello and then the man behind the counter knew my name and held things back that he thought I'd like and we became friends. He was always interested in what I had to say, but on the whole the boys were just waiting for their turn to speak. We didn't document our lives and had few photographs to share. We just said, I was there. This meant more than that you'd turned up. It suggested that you were part of a scene. Much of the talk was about having been at a particular concert, one that had already been deemed legendary. Anyone could listen to a record, but being in the room, even knowing how to find it, meant that you were serious. Even now, when I say I like a particular band, a man will ask only if I saw them, when and where. He will then give a tight nod and ask nothing further, because he's not interested in my thoughts about the band so much as whether or not I have the right to talk about them. The concerts I went to are all in my diary, but even so I wonder if I'm making it up. So much of me wasn't there at all. I remember two versions of myself in that shop. There was the one who trusted her knowledge and taste and who held fierce opinions and who made her way into the group by persisting. I made myself present. I'm still here. But there was also the one who would silence herself and diminish her own presence so as to be allowed to remain. I'm not really here. How did I expect to claim anyone's attention when I was barely present? I wanted to say this and this and this, but to step aside as I said it. This movement between presence and absence might be a failure of nerve, but it is also key to how I write. I start by being intensely present and work towards my own disappearance, which can be achieved 
even when writing in the first person. The idea is look at this, not look at me. I use myself in order to articulate an experience that can be recognized by someone I've never met. I have to step aside so that they can point at the page and say to themselves, look at me. Since I was first published 30 years ago, I've been asked questions about writing and about myself that I haven't wanted to answer. I've been so strongly conditioned to respond that even when the question is hostile or intrusive, I usually try, only polite. The person who asks the question controls what is discussed. Where my closest friends might hesitate to inquire, strangers give themselves permission and I hand over my private self. Questions about writing can be just as tricky as the personal ones because they're often far too general to address or aren't questions at all but someone making a point. Still, I do my best, rushing around, gathering detail, doubling back. I am driven to be precise, to tell the truth, and so say a bit more and usually too much. When I'm seen, I want to be seen clearly. Who doesn't? I'm quite relaxed about what people see in my work, but I do not want them to tell me who I am. These days, I find it easier to deflect a question, and I'm anyway more interested in what might lie behind it, the assumptions out of which the question has been formed. I try to question the question, or to say what feels most true without shaping this to what I'm being asked. I've started to think about what I've never been asked, the answers without questions, the unframed response. The questions I'm asked remain those of the investigative precept. What do you write about? Where do you write? When do you write? Why do you write? The only question missing is who? Who is writing this? My voice arose out of the desire to connect and was shaped in reaction and resistance. It became my own when I started to use words in a way for which I had no example. All the voices I used to imitate, knowingly or not, fell silent, and the only one I could hear was my own. And who likes the sound of their own voice? This process is enacted again and again as my voice changes and I approach a new book. Each time it feels as if I've stopped working. Something in me is saying no, but in doing this, it is setting out towards what it wants to say yes to. Perhaps this is what happened when I was 15. Thank you so much, Lavinia. That first chapter really sets, it sets up so much that you go into in the book. And the title itself, I Wasn't There, I think is, is really quite a brilliant title for the first chapter of a memoir. Um, and I, I guess, I mean, you go into it in the chapter, but I'd love to hear, do you want to add anything more about this paradox in your work of being present and not being present? And whether the act of writing somehow sits within that paradox or perhaps goes beyond it in some way? Um, I don't know yet how to talk about this book. Um, <laughs> I, the paradox, I think, is a very healthy one. Presence, absence, words and silence. Um, I suppose I think of it more as a kind of um, Mobius strip, so you can trace it and you're moving through the diff different surfaces without breaking contact. Um, and I think I had, I had a, a, a more constructive, I've, I've developed a more kind of, well, constructive understanding of, of that movement and the fact that it keeps moving and so you move between presence and absence. And I think a lot of getting the best out of what I'm trying to do depends upon recognizing the moments at which I need to absent myself or make myself present again, or say more or say less. And they're, they're very, 
interconnected. That makes a lot of sense, actually. And and the form for your book, which I think um, I'm going to ask you about a little bit later, really suits that that paradoxical kind of underpinning. Um, you mention how there were often two of you growing up. And again, this is a sort of paradoxical situation, you know, the one that trusted herself and the one that sort of questioned herself. And, and you go on to say that women make themselves small so as to be allowed to stay in the room. And that was something that um, really resonated with me. And I wonder if you feel like this metaphorical room still exists in the sense that there are places that perhaps women have to make ourselves small in order to sort of belong or even thrive in these spaces. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. I think there's a it's um both there are there are um there is um an external meeting of women in the room with that kind of expectation, but there's also internal conditioning to make yourself small, to use small words. And if you use too many words or words that are too loud, you will go home at night and lie in bed awake thinking, did I say too much? Did I claim too much space? Did I claim too much attention? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that really resonated with me. And, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot to be said about the sort of, I, I read your book in, on many levels. And one of them was perhaps a feminist level. Um, being a woman and reading it, it really resonated with me. Um, and of course, because we're having this conversation and you sort of, you you say in that first chapter that no one has asked you who is writing. <laughs> so um, I'm going to have to ask you that. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously there are many parts of yourself writing and you you tap into different ones, perhaps. I'm I'm, I'm making an assumption here. But do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, who you are as the person who writes? What I try to describe in the book is, is a process of, um, of learning that at the start of writing something, I have to be intensely present and get over the fact that it's me, you know, get over myself, as in allow myself to, to remain present. Because I do think that it's really important to stay in connection with the imperatives deep in yourself that you won't have been able to see yet, but which are driving this work. And so I think allowing yourself in at the start, however kind of attention grabbing, space taking, uh, mess making that feels, uh, you know, as, as the first person piles up on the page, um, allowing that to happen, but then doing the opposite thing as well and not allowing anything to stay there because it is yours or your experience or your association. Everything has to then become useful at a level that's much deeper than autobiography. That makes it, I mean, that explain. I mean, that process you've just described really explains why I think this book resonates so deeply. I mean, it's quite an unusual book in that um, it is very much about what it is to be human, but it's written in a way that is so accessible and yet so profound. And that what you just said actually helps me to understand my experience of reading it. Um, do you think, I mean, going back to the sort of this idea of, of there being, um, you know, questions that perhaps weren't that you weren't asked that maybe you have answers for do you feel that on some level um this has come through the that there are writers out there or literary works that have allowed you or given you permission to perhaps ask yourself the questions that the world wasn't asking you um yes i think that my relationship with the relationship between my reading and writing remains really important and that that reading is how we give ourselves permission to write those of us who do go on and, and write it I, I talk about this how it 
writing began entirely as a conversation with the things I read. Um, as for, I, I don't think, I don't have questions I want to be asked, but I'm interested in actually not needing the question and looking behind the question. Where is this question coming from? Sometimes you'd rather not know. <laughs> um, but it's been, I think the most invigorating experience of this book has been the way it has arisen, which is like a kind of slowly accreting archipelago from somewhere very deep, actually interrupted the book I was supposed to be writing. And, and luckily, Faber were very understanding about that and, and got behind this book, for which I'm so grateful because it looked so strange early on. It looks pretty strange now, but it looked really strange in its early stages because these these tiny islands were appearing that seemed pretty formless, but were kind of, yes, but all came from the same rock, really, um, very slowly surfacing these small things. And each time I thought I'd got hold of one and knew what it was I wanted to investigate in that particular section, I found as I set off into the writing that I actually and wanted to say something else entirely and and it was um each one was a process of kind of tripping myself up and and actually interrupting habits of thought and patterns of idea um and and that for me was was the most exciting thing about it and why I kept going and why I allowed it to to interrupt yeah Gosh, that's so interesting. How long, can I ask you how long that process took? Well, there are things in here I've been thinking about for a very long time and that have been explored sort of in notebooks and bits and pieces of fragments elsewhere and, and things. Um, I, I always sort of get a sense of, of a kind of map to be filled in with a book and a, a kind of... Um, the nature of its structure, even when I haven't got its structure. And I knew that this was these um, tiny islands. And I didn't know for a long time the order in which they should sit. And that, that took a lot. And it took um, the help of an excellent editor, Emmy Francis at Faber, to, who really kind of engaged with it and interrogated it and helped me get outside it and begin to create some structure for it. But it felt that every time I approached it, I could only see it through a really narrow lens. I found it almost impossible to, to see it more broadly. I mean, there's a sense of, of close looking um, in the book, which, which I really love. But also you do sometimes pull back. And this idea of place um, is something I want to return to. I mentioned it earlier in my introduction when you uh, at the age of 11, left London with your family and, and moved to a small um, village in Essex. And that chapter is called The Refusal of Place. And I'm just going to read a tiny bit from it that I think is really interesting. I tried briefly to become part of the landscape before embracing refusal. I refused to be a girl or be clever. I was writing all the time. Writing was part of my all-round protest against being where I was. Those are little bits that I've sort of put together from the chapter. Sorry, um, I hope you don't mind me doing that, Lavinia. But um, just Remix. this idea of refusal of a place. And although it sounds like a very difficult time, it sounds like a very rich time in your life. And I wonder if that's partly what, um, you know, did that play a big part in your life in terms of becoming the person you are and the writer you are, that sort of rupture? physical rupture. For sure, it didn't feel remotely rich at the time, it just felt okay. difficult. I think for most, you know, for many, many people, adolescence difficult. Um, a 1970s Essex Village adolescence when you've been booted out of London um, was pretty hard. But it, I did find that the essay about it in the book, The Refusal of Place, is actually about how deeply it has informed my writing ever since. I'm always writing about Essex. I'm writing about the Essex state of mind. I'm writing about the landscape. I'm writing about how it shaped my vision. And one of my acts of refusal was to become abruptly very short-sighted when I was um, 12. 
and uh, it was like it was as if my body was saying I do not want to be here and short sight myopia is incredibly defining I think of people's identity and experience and so on again it's the the um, only being able to look at the, the focused bit yes yes um I want to talk about some of the other forms you write. Um, you talk when you in a in an interview you did talking about the casual perfect. Um, you say that everything you've written has been about the point at which we start to make sense of things. Um, and I really love that that quote. And I, I I was wondering when I read it, would you say that the process of writing is a way for you to make sense of the world and at what point do you hit that point? Is the point of making sense, does it come through the act of writing or does it come when you step away from, from the piece of work and it enters the world? Um, I just was curious about that a little bit. Yeah, um, for me, knowing that I'm going to write about something is something I feel in the body, it's visceral, it's not um, intellectual or emotional, it's very much in the body and it's a form of tension. And it's as if I am being propelled towards something, but I'm unable to grasp it. So rather like Marianne Moore's wonderful poem, A Jellyfish, and the kind of the reaching and pulling back and being actually inevitably unable to take hold of your object. Um, and your object being both beautiful and frightening and repellent might hurt you. Um, so that's the point. It's the point also where you, have the urge to describe, but you don't have adequate language to describe what you encounter. I'm fascinated by the fact that we can only describe the unknown in terms of the known, that we can only meet the new with the familiar. And our brain does that. It's not just language, it's what our brain does in terms of perception. It thinks this looks like an X or this might be a Y. So, so I'm sort of striving to slow things down and try and capture the blank moment of the, of the interruption, of perceptual interruption. I think I also get really exhausted by, by um, my mind constantly trying to grasp the world and, um, and quite value those moments of blankness. Um, I, and I think that, uh, that, yes, for sure, writing is, is a way of, of making sense, it's a way of, of communicating, it's a way of trying to be useful. I mean, above all, I want this book to be useful. I found it very useful and I found it very um, exciting because it, I found it really stimulated my brain and, 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 and really got me thinking about, you know, very, you know, our place, our place on this earth. Um, I wonder if, if some of those spaces you talk about and the fact that we can only really talk about the unknown using the known, perhaps, um, you know, the editing is goes some way towards um, moving away from the linearity of, of what language can do. I mean, perhaps your book is structured in the way it's structured. So for people who haven't read it, you know, it's um, it's fairly episodic, I suppose I would describe it. I mean, it flows beautifully together, and yet it, mo it, it may be like a piece of music, I think, in, in, in a way. Well, it, it feels, it, as I think all books do, like an act of orchestration, and mm. there is a resistance in me to structural convention. I think when I wrote The Importance of Music to Girls, which was published, what, 14 years ago? So I was writing it 25, 20 years ago or something. It was a slow, slow burn. Um, I struggled with it until I allowed it to find its own form. And since then, I've been much more relaxed about form and allowed things to, to show me the shape they want to take. And and this, while this is a slightly, and this is a book in which I roll my sleeves up and say a few things, it's, it is also, it's an experiment in statement rather than suggesting something in a really qualified provisional way. I wanted to just say a few things as well, um, but I didn't want to make a speech or offer a set of instructions, even though one chapter is called a manifesto. Um, I wanted it to feel component and that you could just pick it up 
and like a book of poems, read page 56 rather than page one. Um, and and they feel they feel quite concentrated, although I've tried to, to lighten them. Um, and I, so I therefore kept them quite short. <laughs> you can read one and have a lie down. <laughs> um, I mean, it's interesting hearing you talking about your process and about words fitting around ideas. And I wonder, I'd love to know, because you write in so many different forms. How do you how do you choose which ideas end up being a poem or which end, end up being a novel or nonfiction? Well, I think, as I just said, that it's that things find their own form. I don't think I've ever decided beforehand. I mean, I didn't intend to write a novel ever, but I found that I was writing a poem and I there was um, it was drawing on a memory of when I jumped through a window as a child and got away with two cuts on my knees. Um, but the memory of being held by exploding glass uh, was extraordinary and powerful and stayed with me. And I was trying to write about that, and suddenly the person I was looking at became someone else, and then she became a character, and therefore I had a story, and eight years later I had a novel. Um, and another novel very quickly followed, and then not another novel. So I don't have a plan. Right. And I. Uh, I, I hope I can hold my nerve and allow things to change change form as well. Um, but I love working off the page too, and making work on film and in sound uh, and with music. Yeah. So when you're not writing, what does that space look like? I mean, are you always writing, or do you have periods where you're taking <laughs> material in? Well, I think I mean there's a lot of life, and there has been particularly for all of us the last eighteen months. Um, and I have a big teaching job, um, uh, which is very good for me. It gets me out the house and uh, keeps people keep placing my students wonderfully, constantly place questions in front of me um, uh, and bring new questions from me. And so that all that I enjoy. Um, I think that you have to trust if, if you're pulled away from work, which is, which is the most painful thing actually to, to be in the middle or, or very connected to your work and then be forced to set it aside, which of course happens to most of us, and it physically hurts. Um, but you, it will stay there, it will be somewhere deep at the back of your head. I mean, I always put things in notebooks, and sometimes I never look at that page again, but I remember it because of the act of put, burying it in the notebook. Or I'll write something down and discover I wrote the same thing down 10 years ago, and it they may or may not become manifest in actual finished work. But so I think there's a lot, I, I trust more and more what goes on at the back of the head. Right. Um, right. When you think about working. But I, I would say my I'm always working, isn't it? It's always and when it stops, it's the most unnerving thing, the times of silence. Right. Right. Um I think I'm just going to ask you one more question before your next um, excerpt reading from, from the book. I'm curious because so much of your work is about language and obviously writing is, is unique in that writers have to use the same tools to discuss their work that they have used to create their work. And, and that creates a sort of strange, um, a strange situation. I mean, I, I find it easier to talk about photography or painting, what have you, than, than writing sometimes because it's been written. What more can you say? And do you find do you do you find there's an inherent sort of trickiness in that when it comes to re talking about your own work or or is that not something that that you really think about? Yeah, it, I think, you know, these things find a particular form in language um, and I'm much more comfortable reading from the book and trying to talk about it, especially this is the first time I've ever done it. it and I think a few years after I've published a book, I I think, oh yeah, maybe that's what it's about. <laughs> but you always right. feel rather fraudulent at first, as if you're sort of making stuff up, because I don't really know yet. I just know the shape it's taken. Um, shall I read this little short extract? That would be lovely. Um, yes, please do. About public events. <laughs> About readings, anyway. It's called <laughs> Fuck Quiet. Fuck Quiet. 
You're in a large crowded hall, the lights have been dimmed and the event has already started, when in comes a woman who is in late middle age. She stands in a slant of unwelcome light and then flinches when the door makes a slight creak as she moves to close it. She grimaces as if to say to anyone who has turned their head, I know, I'm sorry. There are empty chairs in the front row of the auditorium, but she will not take one. She stands there until an usher indicates to her that she needs to sit down and directs her towards the front row. And so she sets out. She cannot seem to do this smoothly and efficiently. Why not? It's a simple matter of crossing a room. No. Before she sets out, she transforms herself into an apology. She hunches her shoulders and raises her hands as if to fend off attack. She embarks on a slow motion scuttle, exaggerated creeping steps, as if she needs to make sure we all know that she's taking as few steps as possible. When she reaches the seat, she sits straight down and makes no adjustment, however uncomfortable, other than to draw herself in. By creeping like that, by becoming her own apology, she has invited us to receive her with contempt. I am no longer viable, but please let me stay. I will take up as little space as possible and you can laugh at me, I laugh at me. I despise myself and I invite you to despise me also. It'll be good for you. I used to watch such women and vow not to become them. I hadn't thought about all the ways in which I was already creeping into room embodying apology or how my writing crept and apologized at times. The answer is not to become like those who march into that room and make not the slightest concession to where they are. They don't try to be quiet or signal apology, but head straight for the front row and stand there choosing the best seat, taking their time. Once settled, they relax, spreading their legs and elbows. There's no point signaling your disapproval because they will not receive it. I've watched women who refuse to creep and who move into such rooms with authority and calm. They take the time they need and I've learnt from them. Those who come in noisily and thoughtlessly because they've decided never to creep in again make me uncomfortable, but they have taught me something too. I've also seen women make a point of claiming space in ways that take from other women take from an occasion and from everyone in the room. Each speaker has 10 minutes, but she takes 40. She speaks slowly as if each of her thoughts is delicious and we must watch her savour them. She is sure of the value of what she's saying. She looks straight at the audience whom she does not appear to need. For years, she had no audience, but she will not be grateful now. There will be no jokes, anecdotes or asides or anything to signal that while she is speaking of serious things, she will also relieve us from the pressure of her intent. She won't be comical or cute, and above all, she will not creep. The surface layer of my response is irritation. Her 40 minute monologue has thrown the whole event out of whack. Those speaking after her feel hurried and the chairperson is in despair. The audience have been listening for long enough. They found her majestic but unrelenting. Even so, I prefer her to the woman who follows, who tries to help get things back on track by cutting her own time short, who flutters and apologises and scatters jokes and anecdotes as if it's her job to clean the room of this seriousness, this weight. She's handed herself over to the situation and taken responsibility for making others comfortable, even though it's not her job. Like the woman who took her time, she's just there to speak. This fluttering, scattering, joking, creeping woman is me. Just below my irritation, there is a pulsing anxiety. I'm willing the woman who is taking her time to look at her watch. The annoyance of my fellow panellists, the yawning man in the front row, the sweats breaking out on the face of the chairperson are somehow my problems to fix. If a light bulb blows or water is spilt or someone faints in that warm and crowded hall, I feel I have to fix that too. There is this housework, this mother work, 
to be done, but I can't do it because I'm sitting there on stage, trying not to be heard or seen while the woman talks on. I remember watching my daughter in a school play, her face pale with concentration, as barely perceptibly she mouthed the words that belonged to everyone on the stage. She didn't know she was doing it. For all my anxiety, what lasts is admiration. I wouldn't feel this if the woman taking her time had tried to persuade us of her right to do so. It was the fact that she didn't need to. She wasn't making a point. She valued what came from deep within herself, but her conviction and investment lay in her ideas as apart from herself. What we thought of her was not the point. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Thank you, Lavinia. That's such a brilliant chapter. I absolutely love it. And um, our first question has just come in, which actually works nicely with it um from someone called anna um, who thanks you for your books and for tonight's event and her question is how often do you feel ragingly angry has this changed <laughs> over time and if you do ever feel ragingly angry does it relate to your work at all uh hi anna <laughs> um the second chapter of the book is called notes on anger and it begins by saying, I am angry, um, and mostly I'm angry with myself. And what it tries to get hold of is a kind of late recognition for me that because anger feels so destructive and corrosive and out of control, and in many ways is when it's expressed, that nonetheless, where it comes from is an important place, and it's quite a healthy place often, um, even if it's internalized anger, because it is part of you saying, this is not right, this is not good, this is not what I want. Um, and the anger I have with myself about my work always pertains to the feeling that from the moment of conception, you know, when I had that kind of platonic ideal, the unrealized thing, the first thing when I thought, this is a book, uh, whatever actually arrived increasingly fails to live up to that idea. So at this point, when the book is published, you, you think you're just holding a botched Airfix model in your hands, <laughs> just thinking. Um, but I, I also think that that anger, and I'm, I'm talking now about it as a positive force, lies with the other me that I've talked about in the book. So the one who was there when I made the wrong decisions and didn't say the things I shouldn't, said the things I shouldn't, or then did the things I shouldn't, um, who made the wrong decisions. Even this other one was watching and knew what the right decisions should be. And that's the person I've learned to attend to, not in the kind of looking back at the past way, but thinking actually there is, there is this self 
who, uh, who, who uses anger to actually draw my attention to things I'm not facing up to, perhaps. And I mean that about life and work and everything. Interesting. I mean, do you, when you were writing the importance of music for girls, did you have any sense, you probably didn't have any sense that you would 15 years, like 14 years later, be writing about that book? Um, so I'm taking this slightly off piece just because it popped into my head as you were talking about the, the, the two, the two people, your, your sort of dual selves, one looking at the other. I'm not sure what the. Did you have an inkling? The music, the music book and this book. Because you write about the importance of music to girls in mm. this book. Yeah. And I'm just wondering when you were writing it, was there any inkling that this, that you might be writing about the book as you were writing it? Or was that just no, not? Just no. 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 An element of surprise there. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, I'm waiting for some more questions to come in, so please send them in. Um, well, people could send answers in instead of questions. Oh, people could send answers. I like that. Yes. <laughs> or, um, yeah, questions they don't want to ask. Oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah that's um, good. You don't want to ask is a good one. Uh, Kristen Curtis. Questions I don't want to answer. Sorry? Sorry, say that again. I just said questions I don't want to answer. Sorry, carry on, please. Yes. Um, uh, I came to your work through a double sorrow, which I found an intensely powerful work. Thinking about ways to be a woman in the world, how was it to adapt? Prisidi, thank you for all your work. Mm. Well, Prisid is, so she's this incredibly intriguing figure in, in Chaucer's version of the Troilus and Crusade story, who is not particularly sympathetic, um, who is kind of other and complicated, and Troilus is all kinds of other things. And they actually argue themselves and each other into, into love and almost immediately out of it again. And I think what I learned from, I, I love, for a start, I love spending time in other people's worlds. It's such a relief and spending that time with Chaucer and then later time with William Morris was, was a joy. But going back to Chaucer, I mean, obviously you can't, you have to be careful not to impose our 21st century psychological concepts, concepts of feeling, etc., on something written all that time ago. But I think I learned from doing that and getting hold of, of his imagery in particular, and working with that, um, sort of things that seem obvious but don't occur to you till you're really quite far on in your life. Things like we never have one feeling at a time. I think that's what I learnt most from Chaucer with that work. But I don't think that was the question. What was the question? <laughs> um, uh, uh, relating. Adapting Crusade to uh, ways of being a woman in the world. How how did that feel like? Um, yeah, I was I was quite impressed to find when you look at what Chaucer's actual words are that it, the way she's often presented elsewhere um, uh, simplifies as a sort of passive victim who's being moved around from here to there. And because he dramatizes what is quite a kind of stately courtly dance in the Decameron and going back through the Romain de Troy and all these other versions, uh, I think because he activates the dance, uh, um, inevitably we, we get kind of motivation and the, the idea of imperative and hesitation and so on. Um, and I think that she was, I didn't kind of need to look, I didn't need to work or contrive anything mm. in order to present her strengths um, and her individuality. It was all there. Okay, that is really interesting. Um, we have one from Emmy <laughs> saying she could listen to you all day and night long. 
Um, Lavinia, what was the moment at which you knew you wanted to give this book the title of the sentence fragment that is Some Answers Without Questions? Um, I had written that phrase down some years ago um, because I was feeling frustrated by interviews um, that I'd given and the questions I was asked and how they were edited and published and, and things. Um, and I just wrote the phrase down and, and, and yeah, probably about 10 years ago. And then when I started working on this, I gave it a working title from a chapter of the music book, which was hmm. The Electrified Self, which is the chapter about adolescence and the importance of music to girls. That was, that was the phrase that that gave me the bridge out of the importance of music to this book. And for a while, I thought that was what it was going to be called. And then when I began to, as it evolved, I kind of re-encountered some answers without questions raised. Sometimes something arises and you think it's for, for a certain purpose and it hangs around, it kind of loiters. And eventually, you sort of turn around and it's where it always is over there and you suddenly think actually you could put this here often it's the problem is solved just by or, or the next step is taken just by a bit of rearrangement right. and turning something over and realizing oh it's the title of this book that's why it's hung around it's a very strange thing that's actually quite um reassuring in a way <laughs> um astrid edwards uh, has a question um, regarding your comment on feeling cross with yourself. Do you find it hard to let go of a book once you feel you have finished it? Um, what is your self-editing process? Um, I think that you write until you feel that the thing has enough substance and static that you can show a bit to somebody else. So I would show it to my agent um, and then it would go in this case to my publisher um, and it's really a question of when I know I can't see it I know it needs more work but I can't see it and that's where people like the wonderful Emmy come in and and can see it for me and can show me both what is there and working and what isn't working um, and even then, it's rather like um, therapy in that you, someone might make an observation and it makes no sense to you. Months later, you, you think, yes, I know exactly what they meant now about that problem with that chapter. So time is important, giving things time to evolve and find themselves and for you to be able to see them. Um, and I think editing, I, I very physically edit. So I, I edit on paper, reading out loud with a pen in my hand, and then I lay the sections out all over the floor and walk the field of them and arrange them. And that's that's simply my conditioning. I mean, I began writing on a typewriter um, and in notebooks, and, and I cannot see the rhythm and architecture and frame of something on a screen. Although I'm very grateful for screens because I don't miss the days of having to retype anything uh, where you changed a single word. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's interesting because there is actually there is a sort of physicality in terms of the, your prose on the page. There's a sort of there is a sense of architecture, and also very much a sense of sound. I mean, when you, it almost in, your book almost invited me to read it aloud to myself, and it was lovely hearing you read it aloud. That was really wonderful because it, it the sounds of the actual language are so sort of um, so strong. Um, and uh, there's uh, an interesting answer <laughs> that has come in yeah, for you, from Andrew Hayes. And the answer is, the next Mary George novel will be published in 2022. Oh, I wish. I'd love to. You know, there is another Mary George novel coming. So Mary George is the protagonist of my first novel, who actually happens to be a teenager growing up in Essex. As if it's, I've only written books about teenagers growing up in Essex. Um, and there are two books about that world, and there is a third, which I think I'm going to write after the book that I should have written for favour when I wrote this one. <laughs> so, 
it's all really carefully thought through but no that's definitely one it is evolving and it's again it's there in the room and I make notes pretty much every few days a note is coming towards that story that next story um, which is very much about women and art and that sort of thing we'll see yeah but thank um, you um, for asking about Mary George. I'm glad she hasn't been forgotten. <laughs> answering, answering about Mary George, even. <laughs> I'm sorry for about Mary George. I'm afraid 2022 might be a little ambitious, but I'm on the case. Um, yeah, I mean, your, your, your work does cover a lot of ground vis-a-vis -vis the, the way women move through um, the world. And do, do, you, do you think that the world is sort of more open to that now, or do you feel it's more a, a question that you as a writer, you you want to actually focus a bit more on that? Or is it a combination perhaps of the two? I want to say two things, but I want to preface them by saying that I think investigating the things I have tried to investigate and formulate in this book has not equipped me to make general statements about the condition of women in the world or even the condition of the world or the condition of writing and actually the book is written um the this is the only way i can talk about those things is is, is in the form of this book and in the form of my other work but i would say that um two things have happened things have got better and things have been revealed as really not not only not getting better but um a kind of stripping away of, again, a deep conditioning, which meant we just had no idea. Um, we had no idea about perception and uh, of, of people through, I can't, I can't, I can't get into, I get into those big words and I stop because I've just written about it in the way I want to write. There's a chapter called yeah. Ordinary Speech which tries to kind of say something about the fact that um, it's it's really difficult to solve this question through language because language itself was formed out of the culture we are trying to oppose and deconstruct. Uh, yeah, I think that's where yeah. I was. I mean, I really, really appreciated that in the book as well, because I think um, I think a lot of problems do arise when people start making these grand statements about the state of whatever it is um, in the world. And one of the lovely things about your book is that there's a sort of incredible specificity and yet this sort of generosity that allows the reader to go from the specific to a, a sort of um, not not a sort of yeah, it's very difficult to describe. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, I think one just has to sort of read it to really get it. But finally, I just wanted to ask you, um, has anyone ever offered you writing advice in your life as a writer? And ha has any of it ever been any good? Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a, I think the, the first moment of good advice I got was in the so when when my daughter um was 10 weeks old i spent sorry georgia because she's <laughs> listening to this i spent my last maternity benefit check instead of spending it on food and clothing for her i spent it on a poetry workshop and i figured out i could walk there and back between feeds um in the flat there and back and, and i did this once a week for 10 weeks um and the workshop was run by a poet called Fred Degas. And Fred was really hard on me. And I walked in there with my, I, this was my first ever, ever workshop. I'd ever attempt to take my work out into to the world to show it to anyone pretty much. And um, two things happened. And one was the judgment of the photocopier, which was we used to arrive with our poems and copy them to hand them out to the group. Um, and I had this poem I was really proud of. And, so as I watched it come off the photocopier, I thought, my God, it's awful. And I just put it in the bin and said, I haven't bought anything this week. So having those incredible moments of suddenly the lights going on and realizing what, where you've got stuck. And, and another poem equally kind of awful that I was equally excited by 
I gave to the group and Fred looked at it and he said, this reads as if it's written by a precocious 11-year-old boy. And the group were slightly shocked by his bluntness, wow. but his bluntness was what I needed. And it, I also felt like a, he felt I was strong enough to, to, to have him say that. And I almost immediately understood that I was trying to be that. I was still trying to be that 11-year-old boy. I was in my 20s, but I was still trying to be the 11-year-old boy or, or the sort of boys at school that um, that dominated the, the discourse, really. Um, and any idea of writing was dominated by, by quote, boys, you know, dead white men and, and young white boys. <laughs> um, and and that was that was a really good nudge and piece of advice. And obviously, since then, many people, many friends, many colleagues have said things that they might not have even thought were useful to me, but which have, have changed things for me hugely. Uh -huh. So perhaps, um, you know, the advice that might come from that would be just to sort of get your work out there into the world so that you can see it in a way, see it afresh and see it. How others might see it, just the act of putting it out there. Yeah, I think that when you're when you feel ready um, and having done a bit of research as to where it's going, um, you should definitely get used to sending work out into the world and get used to it coming back. Um, it makes you more serious about what you're doing, and if you're more serious, you will work harder and you'll expect more of what you're doing. And um, I don't think we ever quite get past the, the sort of horror of standing up and, or in this case, sitting down and reading our work to other people, even in this form, um, and talking about it. But you kind of get used to the horror, um, and it just just allowing your work to sort of be out there unprotected it is is a good thing. It's a healthy step to take. Mm. I think we've got time just for one more question here. It's a really interesting one from Di Spears. Um, I concur with so much. How should, could, or could those who ask you questions do it better? Does the failure lie in their reading or understanding or empathy? Sorry, could you repeat that? Yes. Um, it's, it's incredibly subtle. It's wonderful, Di, but I, I just need to think about it. How should, comma, could those who ask you questions do it better? Does the failure lie in their reading or understanding or empathy? Um, I'm not judging the people who ask me. I'm not judging the questions people ask me, but I'm asking them to think about where the question comes from, perhaps, um, particularly the kind of I, I, I write about a series of male interviewers and their various <laughs> approaches to interviewing, which were sort of careless. <laughs> and uh, you know, and when I started out, I had probably ten years of people asking me about being as a woman poet, being a woman poet. Will you talk about femininity in your work? And I said, if I can also talk about masculinity in my work, and how about in your work? Um, and that faded away, uh, but it's still actually there really underneath so i think that um do i do i think people need to emphasize i just think that when when asking questions yeah to sort of stop for a moment to think about where it's coming from mm -hmm. i don't judge. I'm, i mean <laughs> i don't judge um, I think that's a really sort of lovely note perhaps to end on. I, I love this idea of actually the, the person asking the questions interrogating themselves in terms of their, um, their motivation behind the questions. And I've, I've really enjoyed asking you the questions I asked you, Lavinia. I found it really enlightening and I just loved your book so much. Um, and I am telling everyone I, I come across to, to, to read it. I think it's just a truly wonderful and very original and just very beautiful book. Um, and I hope you enjoyed 
the questions I put to you tonight, Lavinia. I hope um, you said this was your first time talking publicly about the book. So I guess that's going to take you a while to process maybe <laughs> how that felt, but I hope it was, um, I really hope it was enjoyable for you tonight as well. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you for, um, it's been a real pleasure um, having a conversation with you. And thank you to everyone at the bookshop and everyone at Favour um, and everyone who's turned up silent and invisible. Um, wonderful that you're here. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.